He played Karakan. His rating was higher. But from move seventeen, the king's side was mine. Took my chances fast. My rook was a knife, and my almighty queen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ladies' Night, the official podcast of U.S. Chess Women. I'm your host Jennifer Chahadi, and you are listening to the artist Huga of HugaMusica.com, and that is a song that certainly captured my heart. Oh, Capablanca! His bishop was small. Thanks to everyone who supports the podcast for your shares and reviews and Apple Live. If you want to get more involved in all we do at US Chess to empower girls and women through chess, please consider a tax-deductible donation of any size to our US Chess Women program and reach out to me with any questions. He has more experience, but I won't lose again. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Ladies' Night. Today, I have a very special guest, actually somebody who I wanted to have on from the very beginning, and I'm sure all of you did as well. It is Grandmaster Irina Crash. She is a seven-time U.S. Women's Champion, a many-time Olympic medalist, a chess coach, co-owner of GM Chess. She's also a longtime friend of mine, so I'm so excited to finally have you on Ladies' Night, Irina. Hey, Jen, it's great to be with you, and hello to everybody. Yeah, I, I know that lately you've been getting more into chess coaching, right? Um, in the last, yeah. I mean, actually for like the last five years, five, ten years? Five years. Okay, yeah. Yeah, definitely not ten years. Not, it's only been a five-year plan so far. Right, okay. So five years, you've always done some dabbling in chess coaching, but more seriously with like the formation of GM Chess in the last five years. Yeah. Yeah, actually, we we formed GM Chess um, January 2015. Yeah, so it's actually been a bit, it's been a bit over five years, going on six now. And yeah, that's true. That coincided with me getting into coaching a lot more intensively. I mean, I think most chess players do, you know, dabble in coaching uh, throughout their careers. And I certainly had students before then. And even, even when I was in college, I was already doing some chess teaching. I used to work in chess in the schools. And had some private students, online students, um, but I, I really didn't become, I would say, a chess coach until uh, 2015. Right, right. Because like, you get invited to places and you do like a lesson here and there, but it's different now. Like it's your career as well as, of course, playing. And um, how has that changed your approach to your own game? Because you've had great successes since becoming um, a chess a professional chess coach as well. Um, is there anything that you've started to do differently with your own study practice now that you've become a coach? Yeah, you study a lot less. <laughs> <laughs> it's a wonderful, it's a great change, you know, it's a little bit of a forced, a forced change. Yeah, I mean, that's the unfortunate part is that um, you definitely don't do as much for yourself as you did before. On the other hand, you know, I'm still like, you know, uh, spending some time on my chest, like just I finished a five day camp uh, with Vladimir Kramnik just yesterday. Um, that was pretty pretty intense thing, but we had like three hours a, a, a day session with him over five days that were split up um, on alternate days, and we had homework in between the sessions, which was also like many hours of analytical work. And so, actually, in the last week, I've done quite a bit of chess. Um, so you know, for me, it's more like periods. You know, it's like it's very hard for me at least it's been hard for me to consistently study for myself. You know, I have so many things going on with my students and the business, but, you know, I, I tend to study more, more intensively in like spurts, you know? Tell us about this work with Kramnik. Um, what was that like? So you were doing it every other day? It was like- a, Yeah, every other day. And what was the reason for that to give like people rest to- You know, I actually love the format of this. I think it's so much better than like a consecutive day camp. Because, you know, the first thing is that how, how intensive it is. Like, it's really not like, you know, something where you just kind of lay back and let him do the talking and you just listen. I mean, there's 12 students in the camp and, you know, we're all forced to answer questions and think. You never know when he's going to call on you. You're quite tired. You know, the, the level of the questions is pretty, is pretty hard. 
And especially given that he gives us um, homework, which can take like hours, just hours. Like, you know, he gives like kind of, you know, positions that are so complex that they're really, like, there's not like, it's not just like one line. It's really an exploration, right? You know, and, and you're allowed to move the pieces. That's how hard it is that there's no way you can just, you know, visualize things in your head. You're supposed to move the pieces and it's expected that it's going to take you quite a while. I mean, how much you want to put into it is up to you. But like, I've spent from an hour to two to more than three hours on positions over several days. And so I think that's a nice thing about the about splitting up the days like that is that it gives you a chance to, to do this kind of work. And what has Kramick shown you about chess that you've never seen before? Because you've worked with Gary Kasparov, many, many great grandmasters. I couldn't even begin to list them all. But you've worked a lot with, of course, your partner at GM Chess, um, Georgie Kashvili, the various coaches that, um, you know, uh, rotate most frequently for the women's Olympic team. So tell us like something totally new that you saw from Kramnik. Okay, yeah, it's very it's hard to surprise a chess grandmaster with something like totally new about chess, right? I mean, like, for example, his correct steps in the thinking process for how to select a move, like when he explains how he does it, it like coincided with exactly like what I've learned from my coach and what I teach my students who are, you know, rated like a thousand or fifteen hundred. So you see, like the the right thinking process doesn't really change no matter what level you're on. But in terms of what I've seen, because you know, he's walked us through his games. Mm-hmm. He's chosen like critical moments in the games where he, you know, has us think over them and really kind of it makes us feel like we're playing these games ourselves. Like that's how invested we sort of are. And the depth, not of just the calculation, but the overall big picture, you see. So even in very complicated positions, like where, you know, they're not so prone to like, hey, look at these elements and think about that. You know, just uh, he still thinks that way. He tries to have this big picture vision of every position, no matter how tactical it is, he's looking for those, you know, orientation points, you know, something to, you know, find and lean lean on. And sometimes, like, he'll ask us, like, and what else do you see? Like, what else? Like, big picture sort of things. And it's like, he's pulling it out of us, and we just can't say it. And like, we're not like a group of beginners, right? But like, we're not seeing those same things that he is in that way, you know? So there's definitely a depth to what he's seeing, both positionally, and of course, just in calculation that is not so so natural for people who are even like at the 2,500 level. That sounds amazing. Can you give me like an example? And it's interesting to me because you're obviously um, well-known as a, a, you know, a well-rounded player, but you're a great positional player and your strategy. I mean, I always remember once when um, we were playing together on a team or a tournament and you said something about how that's not the key piece in the position. And I was like, what on earth is she even talking about? Like, I've never heard that before. Because <laughs> I, I didn't really talk to myself in words. I would always just look at variation. So I always thought of you as this, this great strategist. But like, can you give me an example of something where Kramnik would be, have a strategic idea that like you guys would just not even grasp? Absolutely, Jen. I can give you that example. Um, it just came up in the last camp he showed us a game of his versus Kasparov and it was a game in the King's Indian. I, you know, I don't remember the exact, it was, it was in the nineties and it's a game where Kasparov was down upon, you know, Kasparov was playing the King's Indian at that time. So it must've been before 97 because I think after 97 Kasparov dropped the King's Indian. So Kramnik was white. Kasparov was down upon, but he had compensation. He had like the typical pawn chain, you know, D6, E5, F4. And we were, you know, asked to kind of come up with a move. White had a pawn on G3. And basically, Karamnik's move was pawn takes F4. It's like it was a move that opened up the dark squared bishop on G7, gave up the E5 square. It looks completely anti-positional. All right? Like, I mean, it's just like, yeah, as, as a white player in the King's Indian, to look at that move, to give up so many things to the opponent. Now, why did Kramnik do this? Because there was a black rook on A6 that actually didn't even look like a bad piece because this rook had an open A file and protected the D6 pawn. So it was like a multifunctional piece. And however, he looks at this piece and he was like, you know, if the events open up on the king's side, that rook will be missing from the play. Like, it's like, it's not even so terrible. You know, it's not like this, the standard kind of piece that we think of that looks bad, right? But he just kind of noticed that piece was going to be left out of the game if he made this paradoxical decision to capture an F4. And like all of us, like in the class were very surprised by this move, like shocked by it. And it worked out for him. He won a beautiful game against Kasparov. 
Oh, I'll have to look up that game. Now, wait, can, can you explain why the pawn on F4 relates to the rook on A6? Yeah, because basically when white captured an F4, G takes F4. White opens up the king side. Uh-huh. And because he opens up the king side, eventually white won the game on the king side. Okay. White even had white even had a rook on A3 that was like able to use a third rank very effectively. But still, you know, white was opening up black's pieces and it just was not not a very intuitive decision. And, and yet it's a positional decision. It's not, it was not just based on, I mean, yes, there was calculation, but it was like that understanding. He kept trying to tell us like, what do you see on the queen side? We just didn't see it. It was like, it was not, no one said like, oh, the rook on a6 is like a bad piece and it's out of play because it didn't look like that, you know, but he saw it that way. And, you know, and he was right. That's amazing. Okay, so I see what you're saying now because you're opening up files. Therefore, the fact that the rook is blocked is more important because the files are opening for the rooks. That's crazy, though. That that is and it was it was crazy. And you know, it's like you. I of course, you know, the thing is like yes, I do feel generally comfortable in you know like making those kinds of positional decisions and uh, figuring out like where to you know steer the play. But that move, it just like it wasn't. It wasn't even that I considered it, but decided not to do it. It was like it just didn't even really occur to me. And not only he played it, but he won with it, you know? <laughs> Against Gary Kasparov, of all. Um, so there's 11 other people in this camp. Um, what's the rating level range? Was there like a min rating to get in? I think the minimum rating is like 2,400 uh, USCF. And, you know, they can do an exception for like, you know, talented young players. Um, and there is definitely, you see, there's like a mix in this camp of ages. It's um, very diverse. We have the youngest player was uh, someone, I think, quite well-known, Abhimanyu Mishra, mm-hmm. you know, probably the best young player for his age in the U.S. Um, very, you know, it's already a very, I think, a strong I am, you know, or getting to that, <laughs> getting getting there, um, calculates very well. And I think he's like only like 11 or 12 years old. Incredible young player. And in fact, Grandmaster Maurice Ashley um, wrote an article about him for Chess Life magazine, I believe. And I'm not sure if it'll be out by the time our conversation airs, but um, uh, Maurice had a lot of fun talking about Abi and his his uh, family and his approach to the game and just what a rising star he is. So yeah, definitely. I mean, he is uh, absolutely unusual. I mean that he can be in a class of adults and just do the same work with the same concentration. I mean, he just yeah, I mean, he's a chess player. So there was there was everybody from Abby to you to, and then the others was just a mix of kids and adults. There were kids that were a little bit older. Like there's um, there was Jason Liang, um, who's actually a student of my friend Alex Lenderman. Uh, he's like also close to I think I am level. Already started making I am I am norms. There was Dmitry Gurevich, you know, player from the older generation. You know, Jonathan Schroer, international master, I think from North Carolina. Uh, so that we had these older players, you know, just passionate, passionate about chess. Then we got the young, improving players, right? And then, you know, there was like me, there was uh, Roger Panjwani, also really strong IM. So it was, it was a mix, but it all works. It all works well. And, you know, that's because Kramnik is a good teacher. <laughs> One thing I really like about the Zoom online classes, and obviously, uh, you know, a horrible thing had to happen for people to, you know, start investigating these online chess classes more deeply, like everybody setting up online tournaments and online training. And I mean, I've learned so much about chess and how to promote it via that, but, you know, never lose sight of the fact that so many lives and livelihoods have been lost because of, um, you know, what incited it. The thing is, like, it's really beautiful, the age mixing, I think, in Zoom classes. And I I think it's because sometimes if it's mostly like little kids and older, um, the older ones can feel kind of like overshadowed or left out. Whereas on Zoom, there's this kind of equalizing effect and you don't feel like um, Christopher Shabri and my uh, my friend Ben Johnson's podcast um, mentioned how like it doesn't feel weird to be like the adult in a group of kids like you might if you had to go to like a chess camp. So, yeah, I think that's really phenomenal. And you've done more than just Gramnik, right? You've also been to Judith Polgar's seminar. Oh, yeah, I've done that as well. Uh, I mean, actually, this is my second camp with Gramnik, Jen, not my first. I did one in June um, that was more like, on, I think, positional play. This one, this one was on more complex, dynamic, crazy positions. Hopefully, I'll be able to join another one in October, whatever theme he goes on. It's like, I, I really in- enjoy this. So, yes, I've also joined some online you know, like mini camps uh, that Judith Polgar did, Michael Adams did on, on openings. 
so yeah, I mean, I, I actually think it's kind of amazing that like Zoom has opened up these opportunities. I mean, like, I wh where else would you be able to learn from Kremlin? I mean, we would never get these people together and go off, you know, to Switzerland or something, you know, where I think he, he lives. And yeah, so it's, it's quite convenient. You know, you wake up at noon, you got, you're sitting at home learning chess. I'm happy. Yeah. And I'm sure some of these adults who are there as well are probably just like massive fans of Kramnik. And it's like a pinch me moment. And then, of course, with Judah Bulgar, I talked to um, Tatev Abrahamian. She was in that class. And what was that like? Because you were also a huge fan of Judah growing up, right? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I think her game, the game she was showing in the Sicilian defense were just very inspiring. Um, yeah. And I think I told you, like, as soon as I finished that class, I went and to look up you know, similar kinds of themes, you know, in the Sicilian that she had shown in her games just to show my students to help them learn this opening better. And yeah, I mean, I never actually heard her, heard her, you know, talk before. I've seen her do commentary on like Chess 24 and during the 2000, uh, I think the 2016 World Championship match in New York. Um, and she, but she's a, she's a great commentator. Yeah, she is great. And she um, is a commentator. She's just phenomenal. I really love her commentary style. But she's also really uh, generous, it seems like, with her with her time, with all that she's doing lately for kids, with the Chess Connects Us initiative. What surprised you most about your work with her in this? Um, or I know you weren't working with her one-on-one. -on -one. There were a lot of other people in the class. But was there anything that surprised you about her approach to the class? No. <laughs> it was what you expected. Okay. Yeah, okay. I think so. Well, I think I think it was a nice touch. I'll tell you what she did that I thought was a nice touch. I mean, her topic was the Sicilian defense. And, you know, so she could have just come in there and like talked about the the games in the in the opening. But she actually, you know, she talked about her biography a bit and how, you know, how she was growing up and training and getting good at chess, showed us some pictures, you know. You know, that was a nice touch, actually, you know, to see like the more the developments of the player. She definitely added that like that human angle. I mean, that sounds like it could be really inspiring. You talked briefly about how you were inspired by her class with this, like these Sicilian ideas, particularly with like using the move G5 to gain an outpost on E5 to um, create your lesson plan for our girls club Zoom. What really surprised me and I was so excited by it was that you use computer chess games, right? So you use games from like top computer competitions, um, which were magnificent strategic games. And of course, nobody would have ever seen them before. That's definitely a resource I draw on a lot in my teaching because computer games almost uh, invariably contain something extremely instructive, something deep, and something that kind of reveals the essence of chess. So you can you can find whatever you need, whatever topic you're working on. You could definitely um, try to find it in computer games, and they're always going to be high quality and like not marred by any obvious blunders, right, or mistakes that you would even find in human games. So I actually find it like is like if I want if I'm just going to one source of uh, where I want to look up a topic, like I will first make my stop with computer games. Um, who gave you that idea, or did you come up with it by yourself? My coach Georgie, yeah. Okay. Um, he works with computer games like a lot, a lot, a lot. And basically, I mean, they have just like really expanded, I think, his understanding of chess. So I've kind of been influenced by that. And, and I and I also work that into my own teaching. I mean, just recently, you know, we were talking about like I was telling him about Kramnik's camp. And one position that Kramnik gave us was a position he was playing against Aronian, where there was a piece in balance. Like he had a queen and Aronian had three pieces. You know, this is like a very, you know, not a very standard material balance. And again, you know, we, ha there, we have to find orientation points like um, in it. And I mean, I just told Georgie, like, what was the theme? And Georgie says, yeah, in these positions, it's key that the knight, you know, like the knight is not going to be able to be stabilized. And I'm like, how did you know that? That was like the theme. That was one of the main themes of this game. Like, you know, we've never talked about this before. He's like, I've looked at a lot of computer games. Like I have discovered that by studying computer games seeing these material balances like that is a key feature and i mean that's not something you really think about because you know chess players don't see a lot of material balances of queen versus three pieces no yeah so to even have that sort of like conclusion like a, like something that you can again you know sort of rely on if you do get to that type of, of position to know like oh, okay it's very important that these pieces just don't have outposts you know yes it, it makes sense of course we experienced chess players will understand immediately why that's important but to actually 
have that like phrase that and really be aware of that when you're in the middle of a game, right? There's a lot of other things to think about. Well, that's something that he's gotten from his analysis uh, with the computer. Amazing. And, and what year approximately do you remember that game? I didn't remember the game. Um, that game, but you know, it's easy. If you do any search on chess space, you'll probably, it was queen versus, I believe, two bishops and a knight. So if you put in that material balance, uh, you can find it. It was a game where Kramnik was white. And I'm trying to remember what opening it was from because there was also opening stuff. It was Levan Aronian was the yeah Levan Aronian. Yeah. So Kramnik was white and Kramnik won that game, and it ended in some end game where he had like a queen versus a rook and a knight, and he was winning. Yeah, we'll have to look that one up too. That sounds amazing. So um, now that you've worked so much looking for you know more insight into chess via computer games, do you have? Um, your favorite computer players and does it differ from your favorite computer to analyze with? Yeah, I mean, I think all the top programs to me, like they're all producing valuable, valuable games. So, I mean, of course I pay special attention to like Stockfish and Komodo and Sugar X-Pro and, um, and LC0. And which one do you use for your own analysis? Do you uh, have for my a own analysis, I'll use Stockfish. It's sufficient. The analysis that I need to do does not need to be the most updated uh, version of Stockfish, I, I still use like Stockfish 9, uh, which works well for me. And that's why I haven't really felt I need to upgrade it. But I also have Houdini as a standalone program. And I've done some training games uh, with Houdini. And, you know, it's the same thing. I mean, the, the, you know, it's like all of these programs are good. And they all kind of show you the, the key things in chess, you know, the building up of harmony, the destruction of harmony in the opponent's position. Like they all do that. Yeah, you mentioned something about that in our um, chess lesson for the girls club that the um, you quoted Anatoly Karpov as saying, well, I'll let you say the quote again. Oh, when he was asked, like, what's the goal of chess? And he said, uh, to leave your opponent without a move. Yes, exactly. I mean, that's such a different way to think about chess than like, the idea of um, check, you know, check and mate, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you feel that spirit in these computer games. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, no, of course, the computer is very good at just brute attacking. Like, uh, no doubt about that. Like, he's the best, you know, best attacker out there. But, you know, in even in like more strategic games, for a computer to outplay another computer, they there's not going to be big mistakes, right? So they're going to outplay them on nuances, on nuances of like stopping their, their, their opponent's idea, you know, creating a bad piece in their opponent's position. And then, you know, the difference is that they're also able to like, exploit that like in a very non-obvious way which almost always involves like material sacrifices once their position is good enough you know like almost every computer game is going to end up well i don't say almost every but many many will eventually wind up with some sort of sacrifices at the end out of a situation of like you know domination to get to that point you know they have to really outplay on small things and do you feel like you start to give the computers like human characteristics if you study enough of the games and think about their decision making and their personalities? <laughs> no, I mean, you know, I'm not that much of an expert. Like, I actually think you could probably ask, uh, you could probably ask Georgie, you know, talk about Komodo, Stockfish and Sugar and tell you the differences. I haven't done that much work to be able to really tell the difference. Now, for your own um, s practice um, coaching, what's the level range of your students? And, and you have a lot of girls, right? Like, what's the, the age, level, gender breakdown for most of your students? So I do, I think, for a regular chess coach, have quite a large number of girls, right? So that's not exactly an accident, I think. Most of my kids are not older than 12 at the moment. And they're as young as like six or seven. About in terms of the actual number, I would, I mean, if I just had to say off the top of my head, at least like, I'd say half my students are girls. And the rating range is like, you know, I've had kids that like, I have taken as even as beginners, like people like, like I have a kid that I started working with when they didn't know how the pieces move a couple of years ago. There's not even like a minimum, let's say, level um you know so I, i'm quite happy to work with uh with total beginners and just teach them from from scratch you know most of my students of course come to me having already played some chess i would say like a thousand is a standard pretty standard level 
But the, the top end of uh, the kids I work with now is around like mid 1800s. Nice. So yeah. the the top level is 1800. And a lot of those are ones that you started out as 1000 and you brought them up to 1800. Yeah, like one of my girls, I mean, okay, one of them, I guess I, she was probably around 1300. One of them was like 800 a couple of years ago. She's very talented. She's, um, I mean, and actually out of those, Three players, two of them are girls. Nice. And how many students overall do you have? Like 30, 40? No, 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 no. Then I would have no life, Jen. I wouldn't even be able to do this ladies' night. Okay. Because <laughs> you sound like you're losing track of how many there are. So I'm like, oh my yeah, God. Yeah, I, I, I don't count them. I don't count them. They are, they're, they're there. There's enough of them that they fill up my days. I've never really stopped to count them. I know I, know I could. I could certainly count them. There's definitely not 30 or 40. I mean, I also teach in groups as well. So if you count that. I also do, yeah, a, a quite, a, quite a decent amount of group teaching as part of our GM chess programs. Um, like we've had summer camps the whole summer. Like I said, out of those three of my top students now, two of them are girls, something I'm very happy about. That's nice. And if there's one thing you could change about the way that the um, chess coaching world operated, whether it's like the way the students or the parents or the business runs, what would it be? Like, what would you love to see change? Wow. That's a question I haven't, I haven't thought about, Jen. Change something in the chess world. Well, I'll tell you what I think would be really great for the chess world right now is more communication in terms of like online events for kids. Because I think like probably a lot of coaches are facing this issue that like, well, their kids can't play tournaments, right? And where are their kids supposed to get practice? Like, sure, there's a couple of tournaments, like, you know, there's, you know, the world open online or chess kid organized a championship, but like there's nothing even comparable to what there used to be. Right. And the kids need practice. And it's like somehow if we could just sort of combine, you know, just like to, you know, like I'll, I'll, I'll be like, here, I'm going to spread this information to my students about like, here, there's an arena at this point on Monday night, Tuesday night. And we all kind of send our students to play, get new competition. I mean, all these kids are just sitting at home and they need to play someone. I think that would be great. Now, it's a little tricky, right? It's like, because each coach has their own students and, you know, they're not so willing. Like, I'm, ta- I'm just talking about like basically working together to like just send them to play somewhere, you know? Coaches don't want to give out email addresses of their students because then maybe they would like go to a different, different exactly. coach or class. Yeah. I'll tell you, Jen, like, for example, I wanted to help my students with that. So like I put up something on Facebook where I was like, hey, does anyone have students, um, you know, who they would like, like, I was even organizing matches for kids this summer. This was like a quite a time consuming thing. But like every day, I'd be I'd like, I would send out an email to my list. And I'd be like, if you want to play the next day at like one o'clock, just let me know. And then I would based on their responses, I would then pair them up like according to level as closely as possible, send that information to each one and they go and meet up on, you know, leechess or chess.com and play. So I mean, I was like willing to do that just because I, I saw that the kids were not getting that, you know, I, I, you know, a match is really quite competitive, right? Like you can't just like play there in one minute. I mean, you're going to have a result at the end. Like if you play like that, you're going to lose. So I, I thought it would be really good for the kids to get that competitive elements again. So I, I put up a post on, pa- on Facebook and I got like one response from like a mom in California who had a daughter and she started taking part in the matches. And that was great. Like the mom was really happy with that experience. Um, but no coaches, like not a single coach ever. You know, was like, oh yeah, yeah, let's get their kids playing each other. It's good for all of them. Like, I mean, my, I guess my take is like, yeah, it would be valuable for the kids. It's understandable. I mean, people right now need to make a living, so they're protective of their businesses. But you know, it's always very complicated because generally, um, you see people who are very generous um, with their students and like telling them about, you know, great events that are going on, even if they're they're free or might distract their students from their classes. Um, that also adds to your value as an educator. So the parents are, then it could actually, what I'm saying is people think it'll decrease loyalty, but in some cases it might actually increase loyalty because now you're like this person who's not only a great coach, but also this great networker who tells their parents about great things that are happening. Yeah, I think that's important. And I think that's something like my students, parents, um, they, they, you know, they, they do appreciate that, you know, yeah. that like, I'll send like, like, for example, like all of my students that were over 1800, I sent them info about the Judith Polgar camp, and other things that were going on by organized by um, the North Carolina Chess Center, like some other camps that I thought could be good for them. 
you know, because because you want your kids to just get the best possible chess training they can, you know, whether it's from you or somewhere else. And and yeah, like and the matches they actually I found that the kids who you know, in terms of like the matches, like anyone who was on my list, like they didn't have to attend our camps. They didn't have to go to our classes. It was like, if you're, if you want to play, just let me know. And like, because that expanded the pool for everybody, you know, it made it more interesting and more competitive. And, and I think that the, it was a very productive experience for the kids to play matches, to sometimes even to prepare for the same opponents, to kind of like learn from, you know, match to match. Um, like it was a good experience. And I, I would be happy to kind of, that to continue. Just to circle back to your your girl students, obviously you've been asked like probably, I don't know, hundreds, maybe thousands of times about your views on women in chess over the years and all the interviews. But is there anything that like being a professional coach and having so many female students in the last few years has changed your opinion or answer to those, you know, basic questions about why there aren't more girls, your thoughts on women's tournaments, Anything that that um, you've kind of like changed your ideas on? What I, I see is that, you know, girls can be very into chess. And I see that you, you have to have a certain type of, of character, I think. You know, like the two girls that I have that are, you know, pushing that 1800 level, they're similar in a way. And they're similar and they're different from the general pool of kids, of course, overall, right? Because like they're more serious, more dedicated. They just They just want it more. How does that change what you feel about, you know, getting more girls into chess? Well, you know, one thing that Judith spoke about was like expectations, right? Like when I asked her this question of like, do you have any special words for like the girls attending uh, your camp? Like what, what can you say to them? I mean, she basically said, you got to have high expectations and your coach has got to, your coach has got to have high expectations for you. I do think that's important. Like that there's never any sense. Like when I teach my girls, like, oh, like this is good enough no level is good enough. You know, you're, you might be the top girl in the country for your age or in the top five or 10. Like, that's okay. That's nice. But we're just like, we're just trying to become better chess players. It probably has been good for the girls that I've taught to, to kind of see me and they see my kind of style. Like I'm not coddling them. I'm like, just, just, you know, just um, kind of matter of fact, you know, matter of fact about the mistakes and what needs to be improved. And how important it is to be like a good fighter. It's like, that's important. Like I let my, my students know like chess is a, it is a fight. We're not, you know, playing around here for girls to hear that from, uh, from a woman. It's probably extra helpful because, you know, I see, I see the way their, their characters are going. Now I think they, they kind of, obviously they had that before because I think like, it's not like completely molded by the training. No, I mean, it was probably something about them before, but certainly when they came to me, they were not like advanced, right? And the fact that they made like very significant improvements, which requires you to be kind of tough, it requires you to lose games, it requires you to have setbacks. And I mean, I always talk to them about how important the like, you got to have the character for chess. You know, did you take it easy on yourself? Did you take a draw when you shouldn't have like one one time my student came to me and she, you know, she'd won a match. She got one and a half points out of two, right? And I was like, Okay, uh, so so what did you get by drawing this game where you were up a pawn in a uh, four against three rook end game? Like, what did you get? Was there was there a prize? Did you uh, there, did you get uh, you know did you become a champion in something? It's like nope. And I'm like okay, so what did this give us? And at the end, you know, of course you you want them to understand. Like after that conversation, she has to know that she can't come back to me with a one and a half out of two if she had like an extra pawn in a rook end game and didn't try to win. I mean, it's like yes, of course I will talk to a boy the exact same way. That's that's not. That's not the question. But I think the fact that I will talk to the girl that same way, that's the good part, you know? Right, right. And I'm sure Judith would be delighted to hear that as, uh, yeah, it's uh, exactly what she's talking about. And I think it's just so hard for people who don't have your experience level not to get a little bit more excited than you would because you've climbed all those ranks. So you know that like winning the world youth, you know, like winning a medal or something in a girl's section of a world youth is great, but you're still going to be looking at the games, not like, you know, over overzealous about those steps on the road. And what about advice for like girls in the tournaments that they play in? Because there are so many women's tournaments now. And that's in some ways great because it gives the girls a chance. Obviously, people want them if they exist. Let's just, you know, supply and demand, right? But um, is there ever a point at which you're like, you know, maybe you should be playing more mixed events or... 
I'm not sure about this one because you're going to be the highest ranked player. Do you ever give advice like that? Or do you usually just let them decide about event selection? I think um, I try to have an input definitely in what my students play. And I think that's important for a coach to do, you know, to kind of guide the students and the parents because the level of competition you're getting is actually a huge factor in your uh, improvements. So sometimes I have, you know, kids, uh, girls, you know, whose parents like they just intuitively like just they look for the strongest tournaments and the girls themselves, they just want to play the strongest competition and they just kind of got that down. So there's not much I have to do. Like, for example, I had one girl and she was like, I don't know, maybe 1600 at that point. She started playing like she wanted to play open section at the Marshall Chess Club, like I think open. And she would go in and she would just lose all her games. You know, I mean, she's just like, you know, she's playing people a lot higher rated. And I was like, like me, I was like, are you sure you want to do this? Can you really like, what, what, like, I mean, I'm fine if you want to play under 1800 or under 2000, like there's nothing wrong with that. That's good. But this girl, you know, she was just kind of tough and she, she knew that she would lose a lot of games, but she wanted the better competition, you know, I was like, all right, that's fine. If you can handle it, you know, you're not feeling psychologically like destroyed by losing a bunch of games, like, okay, then, then go ahead and go get that better competition, you know? I definitely think like nothing would have been wrong if like she would have been playing under 2000, you know, like as a coach, I probably would have, you know, recommended that, but it depends on the student. I mean, I, my general point is of course, try to get competition. That's a few hundred points, higher rate, higher rated than you. That should be like the goal. That's really all you need for improvements. I, I mean, I haven't really had any issues with that. Like I don't have any issues with girls who are like playing too many girls tournaments. I think there's nothing wrong with playing some girls tournaments. Like I'll tell you, I had one of my students and she would play this tournament. God, I'm trying to remember the name, the Queens. There was the Unruly Queens. Unruly Queens. Unruly Queens. So it was like a tournament for women, right? Organized by these young American girls. And so I let all the girl students I knew know about that. And my students, uh, so she started playing and, you know, she's like, she's not 2200. I mean, it's hard for her. There's still a lot, many better girls, but she really enjoyed it, right? So what's the harm of her playing? And she was so excited and she was so excited when I won, you know, one of those tournaments. So it was like we were playing in the same event, right? And so like for, I think for a student to play in the same tournament as their teacher is kind of cool um, to see their teacher do well. And she got a lot of good competition against like some of the top girls in the U.S. I mean, I definitely don't think there's anything wrong with a all girls tournament like that, you know? Um, so anything, first of all, that will get your students motivated and like excited about chess, I think is, is good. And with an eye that overall, you just want to play good competition. So whether it's like an all girls tournament or a mixed event, you know, you can, I think you can do a mix, a mix of that really. And I don't, I don't see it as being, um, bad one way or the other. One thing that you've said a lot that I quote you on, um, but I've never asked you to elaborate on is that, um, you think that sometimes kids plateau when they study, um, chess tactics exclusively online and that it, they get better at first, but at some point they get, they hit a wall and they don't get, continue to get better at tactics. And at that point they need to use books in a real board. Can you elaborate on that and how exactly should they approach that switch? I guess because I grew up doing tactics in a book and I still kind of, that's like, if I want to solve positions, um, I'm still going to go to a book or bored. And because, you know, my own experience, like as someone who uses the internet, is just like, I see chess puzzles online, and I never delve deeply into them online, like never. And like, I mean, I, I mean, of course, you can solve a problem in like a few seconds. But like, if it's a hard problem, like I've never spent like half an hour thinking about anything I've seen online. But I have spent that much time on things I've seen in books. You see, it's so much easier for your eyes to look at it so much you know, less distraction of like clicking on something, you can come back to it like day after day. So just like my experience is like, I'm like, well, if I'm not doing this, and I'm someone who pretty serious about chess, and um, I should be able to focus and solve a problem, but I just don't do it. Like, why would I think that kids would spend that long to solve hard problems? I don't see it happening. And so but I but I think that that experience is important for them to do progressively harder and harder things. And so I think just taking a book, getting off the computer and doing something with no distractions, completely in your head without, you know, moving any pieces on the computer is, uh, is still the best way to, to develop that, you know, and there's so many other things you can do on the computer. You can play, you can get the practice, you can watch videos, watch commentary. There's just so many things you can do 
online anyway. Okay, so yeah. pretend I'm your student. I'm like, but Irina, what about Hikaru Nakamura? He never studied at Chaspa. Well, and yeah. he's the best and he's the best blitz bullet player in the whole world. And it was in the top like three players once. So what do you Definitely, say then? Right. I would say Hikaru is special and his talent is special. Um and, and you know, just because something works for one player out of like a million doesn't mean it's the best approach. At the end of the day, you know, like Carlson never said he's you know, never studied a chess book, right? Carlson has read a lot of chess books and he's pretty well known for that. And I know he's played a lot of online blitz and all of that, but, you know, certainly he's not someone who would say like, oh, you know, reading chess books is not valuable. Well, also you could probably say, like, I was just thinking of this as a potential rebuttal to my statement, um, which is that Hikaru is so good that he could probably slow down and just study blindfold, right? So he you know, he might be able to just like walk around the city and be studying chess, which you kind of like as Fiddler or Nakamura, you kind of need to reach a level to be able to do that super efficiently. Yeah, yeah. Those players can do that for sure. Yeah. But I mean, I think we're talking about like the young players who are trying to become like Nakamura, right? Exactly. Like, yeah. like, so those players are unlikely to go walking around in their head, you know, thinking about positions when they're kids. I mean, yeah. So like Hikaru was able to achieve that, but I still think like for most kids, it's like a foolproof way. I mean, people were doing it for decades, right? Studying in books and just improving their visualization and calculation skills. I agree with you. And I think it's also enjoyable, you know, like that's the kind of people are seeking out meditation and, you know, trying to reduce their screen time. So if you learn to enjoy studying off the computer, like that's a great way to, you know, scratch that itch, really. It's also just because the kids need to see that chess is more than just a computer game, right? It's like they need to appreciate the thinking, the effort it takes to solve difficult problems. You know, even like, you know, sort of like the analysis, right? It used to be such a big part of chess, like analyzing chess with somebody, right? It was like how people got good. And it was like, it was a big deal. Like Kramnik, I think he talked about like his first Linaris where um, he'd walk into the in, into like the analysis room after the game and watch all these you know, top players analyze and how inspiring that was for him. And like, that's also being lost, right? I mean, it's being lost to the, uh, to like the computer thing. Like that's why kind of like in Kramnik's sessions when he would give us homework and we were expected to analyze it and we could move pieces on the board, but you know, we couldn't use the computer and it was extremely enjoyable. It's like, it takes you back to like, you're thinking with your own mind and you're doing this exploration, right? Like there was a position I came back to, like I analyzed with a friend and we, we looked at it on Tuesday, on Wednesday, and on Thursday. I mean, it was like that hard that even analyzing was such a good player. Like it was impossible to come to a conclusion. Now, of course, we could have turned on the computer and just had an answer in seconds, maybe a couple of minutes. But I'm sure there's value in doing, you know, some things like with your own, you know, taking the time. Let's, let's put it like that, right? Like maybe our answer was not as good as what the computer gate would have given a few minutes and we spent like so much time, you know? But still, there are things that we found that were like incredible, incredible, like memorable. And they will stick in my mind, even after all those computer variations that I'll see on a screen, like just gone. Yeah, I'm sure it's very tempting for most people. I mean, I know you're like, you have a lot of integrity and um, discipline, I guess. Um, I can imagine some people like, you know, just couldn't resist at some point, like the curiosity of like plugging something into a machine. But that's great. Like, when you were studying with uh, Judith and Kramnik in these online sessions, did you also have a chessboard to like set up the position from the screen if they gave you like five, 10 minutes to look at it? Yeah, n- yeah I didn't do that. I mean, I mean, maybe because my table is kind of messy. It's possible to do that. Definitely in Kramnik's camp. I mean, there would be time. Um, but still, you know, we're not thinking for that. Like sometimes it's not that long, right? So it's like by the time you set up something, it's already yeah. into your thinking time. So for three hours, we could manage. I mean, if it wasn't like we were doing it for six hours a day, three hours, we could look into the screen. But then after all the homework, you would use like a real chessboard. This has been so fascinating, but just have a couple more questions. You have always had really interesting hobbies. I remember you used to like rap, used to do some Latin dancing. Um, But what are what are they right now? Like, what are your secret passions right now? My secret passions. Um, Okay. well, one of them is I'm learning. I'm learning a new language. So that's interesting that is taking uh got to make a commitment which language yeah that's a secret dad i'll let you know when i start speaking it well <laughs> i tried to figure out what it would be ah yeah 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 okay one day and um 
also, I'm trying to improve my singing for church. So I'm doing, yeah, some lessons and, you know, and I, and I got no musical background at all. I'm like very not, not musical. I never played the piano or took any singing. And so for me, it's like really something kind of new. Like I, it's like for me, the, uh, the scales, like I was just like, it's all foreign, you know, but I'm trying to pick up on it just for the sake of, you know, being able to uh, sing, sing adequately in church do enjoy the the church singing. I'm excited to hear about that because it's just like the kind of thing that you could easily hear from an adult woman saying like, you know, I never got a chance to learn chess as a kid, but it's just kind of amazing to learn about all these tactics and algebraic notation. And, <laughs> yeah. you know. Yeah. yeah. And the thing is like, I, I gotta say, I'm not like interested in those things. Like I just want to learn to sing the things that I need to learn to sing. You know what I mean? I'm not trying to become a singer in general, but in church, you know, when you, when you go every single week and, you know, you hear the singing, the songs that you really like, you know, you want to be able to sing them without messing everything up for, you know, for everyone listening. Right. So, and it, it requires effort. It's like, it's not so simple. It's not just like, you, you know, you got to, you got to break it down. You got to see what you're doing wrong. And then you got to practice. So it's like, it's like a little bit like chess. I think it is. And you see a lot of overlap between some of the children. We had a the wonderful singer Huga at our girls club yesterday. And a lot of the kids, especially the ones who came to that session are, you know, dual um, hobbies of chess and um, music, usually piano or singing or violin. Um, just so many of them. And yeah, I, I wish I wish I'd learned an instrument when I was younger as well so that I would have that that background. It's good to hear that you're singing. Uh, I think most pe- listeners are aware that you had this uh, struggle with COVID and you um, had a difficult spring and summer um, in recovering from it. You were actually featured in the New York Times. Um, that was such a lovely article. And you were quoted there saying that it's not just a disease, it's a life trial. Chess players know what it's like to be in a bad position to suffer. I realized it was going to be a long game with no easy victory. Um, that article was um, published a few months ago. And um, tell us now, like, your reflections and, you know, how this terrible disease has, you know, changed your outlook. Well, I would love to tell you that, you know, it just all goes away and you uh, get back to your baseline level of health. But you know, I'm still still not there. And you know, I'm I'm happy that I've been functional for pretty much the whole time that I can have like normal quality of life, even with not feeling a hundred percent, at least like in my chest area and my breathing. You know, the thing is like Jen, I yeah, I, I stopped making Facebook posts about it because you know in the beginning I was updating people on like all these things like they were relevant, you know, at some point, there, there's like no big changes, right? There's not so much to add. Um, and it's not, it's not because everything like just miraculously faded away and returned to normal. It's more just like there's no, it's not going anywhere. <laughs> you know, it's not going and there's no big changes and you feel better, you feel worse. It's kind of always with you. It's not like it was before. Um, but, you know, but you're able to live, you know, and I feel I definitely like, you know, having joined this Facebook uh, group for long haulers, I mean, it gives you some perspective, like um, what people are going through and what it really could have been like for you. So I think for someone who still is experiencing symptoms like six months in, I'm actually doing really well because the range of symptoms could be actually so much more extensive. And there's people who are just kind of like facing debilitating systems that don't let them work. And I mean, I'm quite lucky, yeah, that I am able to work and enjoy life and, you know, pursue my hobbies. And even even if I don't feel, you know, the same way doing them as I as I did like six months ago, but maybe I will in the future, you know? What did you call it? You said you're in a Facebook group with other people who've had like long COVID? Yeah, yeah. So we it's, it's called like for like long haulers. Okay. It's been an invaluable, an invaluable kind of resource because people are just sharing their stories, their symptoms, the results of their doctor's visits. I mean... It's like, you know, the information to the for the public, it's, it's trickling out. Like you're going to see in the big newspapers and magazines, like stories about people who have this like six months in. But it's like, that is like a trickle compared to what you see when you just read these things on a daily basis, right? Just on Facebook. And you just see like every single day, you know, dozens of posts, I don't know, maybe more like hundreds of comments on each post. So, you know, you know, you're not alone and you know what people are going through and you kind of like, why am I not really going to the doctor's, Jen? It's not because I feel 
you know, 100% well. I'm not going because I know it's useless. You know, I know I'm not going because I know people who are even worse off than me with similar symptoms are not really getting help. And like, and if they can't get help, and I'm like, actually functional, and there's not much point. So I'm just, I'm trying to just kind of focus on my life, even though, you know, of course, a few months into this disease, I was like, I did make some doctors. I was like, why am I not better? Why, am I, why, why, why do I still have chest pain? Why can't I breathe normally? And I thought there would be like, you know, um, some answer, but now I see there, there is no answer. So, you know, it's, it's just like a matter of time. It's a matter of time. And, um, you know, hopefully it's just going to get better on its own. That's my hope with that. Yeah, Jen, <laughs> that's the good news. I'm sure I speak for the entire chess community when I say that we're happy that you recovered from the worst of it, but sorry that you are in this um, group of long haulers and that you don't feel um, 100% and still feel lingering negative effects of the disease, which, you know, I think just goes, um, you know, to show that people who have been um, taking this very seriously um, need to be cognizant of that. When you post in that group, do people, because I mean, it was such a great article about you in the New York Times. Do, you, do a lot of people recognize you? Was there a thread about you specifically at some point? No, you don't know, Jen. I haven't really been a vocal member of that group. And I actually don't really post in that group. Like maybe I've, you know, maybe once or twice, like when someone makes a post saying like, hey guys, uh, you know, I'm four months in and I still have shortness of breath. Like anyone out there? Like, sure, I'll be like, yes, me too. And like, that's, that's the most, you know, out of like hundreds of comments. So like, I haven't in any way tried to be visible. Or sometimes they ask like, does anyone want to do an interview for this or that place? And you got to sort of volunteer. Do they want to interview long callers? Like, I, I, I haven't um, really been too active in that. I've mostly just used it, you know, just to see, you know, yeah, like, what can I expect? What are people going through? And of course, if I, you know, if I stumble on something very useful, I, I, w I would post about it. I mean, I haven't, since I'm not really <laughs> recovered, I have nothing to really share with people, you know, in terms of what they can do to get better. But yeah, I mean, I think that that's really a big, uh, a big story, right? Is like, because when we talk about like death rates from COVID, which are thankfully not so high, but it's pretty clear that like for a substantial number of like these millions of people that are affected, it's like this is not going away in like a month or two, right? And so you hope eventually it goes away, but there's so many people like six months in who are having the whole range. And one interesting thing, Jen, that I've recently found by being on this group, there's starting to be questions of people who've developed symptoms later like people who started getting this disease in March or April. And then the question is like, how much later did you develop like heart palpitations? And for a lot of people, it was from the beginning and it just continued, right? But there actually are people like that I'm seeing now that are like saying, okay, I got it in June. I got it seven weeks in. I got it two months in. It just started, which is like, that's like really a new thing. You know, that these are things that they didn't even start out with. And that came on like later in their disease as they're supposed to be like, you know, recovering. Um, you know, COVID is a surprising thing. It throws a lot, a lot at you, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And those of you who did miss the article, of course, I'll link to it. it was by David Wallenstein. I like the title, Chess Prodigy's Return to Health Brings Cheer to the Game. You know, today on Twitter, which thankfully for you, you're not on. Um, no, I, I love, I love the chess and poker Twitter. I'm just kidding. But um, yeah, sometimes it's very... Very gossipy, um, and uh, you can it can suck a lot of time. But uh, somebody tweeted about how you know obviously the chess industry, the chess world, has really boomed since COVID nineteen, and clearly there's some direct relationship because people are spending so much time online, and how it's like delicate to celebrate that while also really keeping in mind the gravity of what's brought us here. Being someone who has both had seen some of the great, you know, up, up points of that chess boom, including the League of Nations and the um, upcoming U.S. championship that's going to be online. What's your perspective on that? How do you feel like people should talk about that? Like, this is a great time for chess, but it's a horrible, horrible time for the world. How do you tackle that gracefully? Yeah, I mean, I think you can talk about it just the way, <clears throat> just the way it is, you know, that, I mean, COVID and the changes it's brought to the world are certainly not universally bad, right? I mean, there are parts of it like that, you know, you're able to work from home, you're able to spend more time on things that you enjoy, like even for me, right? So like, I don't have, let's say, yes, I would like to have everything and like the perfect health and all of that. But you know, six months ago, I didn't have I time to pursue learning a new language. And I didn't have 
time to, you know, do the such regular practice on the, on the singing. And also, Jen, you know, I've lost, I've lost more than 10 pounds in the last, you know, month and a half. And that's not something I was able to do when I was like working six or seven days a week, like my normal schedule. And this is not because of my illness, by the way. <laughs> this, is, this is just like actually an effort, you know, all these things that you can sort of put into yourself, like your time is freeing up. Um, I can take walks. Now I walk every single day. It's also not something I was doing. That's another thing I'm really focusing on. I actually subscribe to a cooking service. And I think that's another thing that's come out of COVID, right? Is like people are sitting, sitting at home and all these chefs, right? They're not like in the restaurants. And so they've started the thing actually out of Williamsburg, where these top chefs are cooking amazing meals. Like it's like I'm so excited every week when I get this this food. It's like it's not like what you think of as like, oh, just something gets delivered to your doorstep. Like it's really good food. And it's partly because of this, you know, bad situation, right? It's like there's also like good things coming out of it. I just see like the good and the bad. Like I see positive effects for my life. I obviously see a, a negative effect for my life. And absolutely like you don't really want to think like, you know, I'm just going to get it and it's going to get and it's going to go away. Like it could go either way. I mean, I think it's a, overall, it's an interesting time. Right. Yes, absolutely. Well, that's good to hear that you um, have all those positives that I hadn't even thought of. Um, but yeah, so you're, you've been walking more and eating well and working out. And before you were like, you work a lot now teaching, but the difference is that you had to do a lot of commuting and stuff and travel. So you absolutely yeah. like, I mean, so much of my life, like six, seven days a week. I mean, it was just the commute and the crazy, crazy, you know, taking the train into Manhattan, all of the things there. I mean, you save so much time, like all that time has gone into like, back on trying to kind of develop myself as a person, you know, I think like, yeah, for me, that's just the beginning, right? It's just like, I, there's other things I want to adjust, make more time for more time for studying chess. Yeah, I think like, overall, like, it's had some really really good size. What's the number one thing you've learned about yourself as a person because of it? Hmm, because of because of COVID? And this time at home. What have I learned about myself? I love the quiet life. I think I probably knew that, but I love being home. I love, I always, always thought like a person has to invest in themselves. You know, it's not all, I mean, it's great. Work is great. And all of that, that's all great. I've always kind of thought like, you know, you got to improve yourself. And like, in the last five years, like I haven't had a lot of time to devote to things like you mentioned, like I used to do hip hop dance, right? Rap, like, um, like, well, I, I hadn't haven't had a chance to do hip hop dance. I haven't even had a chance to like, you know, I mean, I'm not saying it was impossible to work it into my life. That could be a function of my poor planning and scheduling. But it's clear now that even with my poor planning and scheduling, I'm able to do all those, all those things that I just wasn't doing six months ago. So there's definitely something about like, having that time to develop yourself in some way that is so important. I wouldn't want to go back to that other life where you're just like running around, running around, not getting better at anything yourself. Love it. Giving little pieces of yourself all the time. And, you know, that's why I, when you describe this lesson with Kramnik or Judith Polgar, and there's all these grownups there developing themselves when usually they're out there giving themselves. That's true, Jen. Absolutely. And, you know, giving yourself, it's like, I'm happy. I'm happy to give myself, but some, you know, like all you know, to, to my students as much as I can. But then there's just this part. It's like you gotta, you know, build yourself up so you can give that, then then give more to other people. Exactly, it's about that balance. Yeah. Well, that that's that's a beautiful point. I think to end us with then, and of course, you can find out more about Irina all over the place. She's not super active on social media per se, but she does have her company, GM Chess, which is at gmchessinc.com. If you want to find out more about her. Um, group classes and you'll be seeing her at some some prestigious online events as well so wonderful to have you on ladies night Irina. thank you john it's awesome talking to you thanks so much if you like what we're doing at us chess to encourage women and girls to explore stem fields accentuate competence and approach an even ratio with a focus on intersectionality your donation to our us chess women programs is always appreciated and tax deductible. The U.S. Chess Suite of Podcasts, including Ladies' Night, are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit sevenseasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Don't forget to listen and subscribe to all U.S. Chess Podcasts from One Move at a Time, Cover Stories, and Chess Underground. Till next time, may every night be Ladies' Night.
Now according to Stockfish I got it all wrong After slightly advantage I had nothing But my dear Capablanco You tell me Victory